0: You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. I wonder, who is the best leader that you've ever worked with? Who's the leader that you think of when you think of, this is, this is who I would like to be if I was in their position? Because my guess is that for most of us, we all have experienced the flaws and strengths of the leaders around us. Some of them are great leaders. Some of them are okay. Some of them are mediocre, and some of them are bad. Our experience often varies when it comes to leadership. Some of us will have experienced what some have called the Peter principle. That is, when someone who is otherwise competent gets promoted again and again until they enter into a place where they are incompetent. Sometimes the problem is on our end, though. Sometimes it's our attitude, something a little bit like uh, one of my favorite clips from Ryan from The Office. Let's see if this plays. i got away with everything under the last boss, and it wasn't good for me at all. So I want guidance. I want leadership. But don't just, like, boss me around, you know? Like, lead me. Lead me when I'm in the mood To be led. I just want, for once, that's some of our experiences. Sometimes we like being led when we're in the mood to be led. But for others, we've experienced the freedom, the kindness, the generosity that comes when we sit under good leadership. Well, over the last couple of months, we've been looking at two different kings and two different ways of leading, that of Saul and of David. But now we're we're taking a look at what they're all pointing to, not just a king, but the king, King Jesus. Because regardless of whether we have experienced life-giving leadership in our jobs and our workplaces, we all live life Under the leadership of Jesus. We all live as followers of this King. And so what does life under the leadership of Jesus look like? What does life lived under the kingship of Jesus look like? That is what we're going to look at this morning. So I'm going to pray for us as we begin, and then we're going to jump into the text. God, I pray that you would open our ears, that you would open our minds, that you would open our hearts to you this morning. God, I pray that we would get a better picture of what you are like, and that we would yield our authority to you this morning. God, we pray that for all those who are burdened, that you would relieve their burdens, particularly as they look to you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the context this morning is that Jesus has been doing lots and lots of miracles around him. And there comes an important question. Jesus has fed the 5,000. Jesus has raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Jesus has commanded the winds and the waves to calm down, and they did. The question on anyone's lips who would experience this is who is this man? i dare say if Christina was commanding the winds and the waves and the weather around us to start with us, who on earth is this? A word has got around, and Jesus, while he's praying, asks his disciple, who do the crowds say that I am? Well, the the answers kind of vary, don't they? They answered John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others, that one of the ancient prophets has arisen. These are not only influential leaders in the history of Israel. These are influential prophets. They are people who not only have the ear of God, but are the voice of God. Often when a prophet speaks, they first say, thus says the Lord. And I think what's going on is that people are recognizing that Jesus not only has the authority of God, but he speaks as God. But then Jesus asks them the killer question. He says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I know what the crowds are saying. What about you, my closest friends, my closest followers? And Peter answers on behalf of the other disciples, you are the Messiah of God. Messiah is a word laden with meaning. It's a Hebrew word that means anointed one or chosen one. And in the Greek, the equivalent word is Christos or Christ. Hopefully I'm not bursting any bubbles here that no one thought that Jesus' full name was Jesus Christ. If Jesus was Applying for a bank loan, he wouldn't put down Mr. Christ. Christ is a title. It's God saying, this is the anointed one. This is the chosen one. It's word laden with meaning. Particularly if you look at the word anointed, at particular times in Israel's history, particular people were anointed to show that they had a specific purpose or that they were set apart. So when Elijah, one of the prophets of Israel, uh, has Elisha around him, God tells him to anoint him to communicate that the role of prophet has passed from Elijah to Elisha. When Aaron uh, becomes the first high priest of Israel, he is anointed with oil, and particularly in recent memory for us, Samuel anoints both Saul and David as king's of Israel This is so meaningful that when David has an opportunity to take Saul's life who has been pursuing him trying to kill him he says I can't Saul is God's anointed one This is a word laden with meaning. And I think what Peter is declaring is not just that Jesus is significant. He's not just saying that he is a prophet. He's not just saying that he is a priest or that he is a king. He is saying he is the priest of priests. He is the, he is the prophet of prophets. He is the king of kings. This is God's chosen one. But who do you say that Jesus is? I know that uh, you probably have an answer on the, the tongue, right, right on your lips. And it's probably the answer that you should give, particularly if you've raised, been raised up in church. If there's anyone here this morning who's come, somehow found their in, has never heard of Jesus, not quite sure who we're talking about, welcome, brother or sister. But regardless of whether you're a faithful follower or whether you're a seeker searching for truth. We probably all have an idea of who jesus is or at least the right answer to say at youth a couple of fridays ago we were talking about jesus and the gospel and what it might call us to and one of our young people said i know the right answer and i also know the answer i want to give how many of us have that experience right what is the answer you want to give to the question who do you say that jesus is Because we can know the right answer, but declare something differently in our hearts, can't we? We can say that Jesus is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Prophet of Prophets. He's the Saviour. He's the God's Son. But what do our lives, what do our hearts actually declare? I think that's what's most important. Do our lives Are our lives changed because of who we claim Jesus is? Do we make different decisions based on who Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Peter's response is God's Messiah, God's chosen one. You are the anointed one. And Jesus gives such an interesting response. He, tells, he sternly ordered and commanded them not to tell anyone. This is, kind of seems like a contradiction. Jesus is going around. He's, t- he's showing his power. He's doing miracles. He's raising people from the dead. He's feeding the 5,000. And then when anyone works out who he is, he's like, shh, just be chill. And it surely has something to do with the context in which Jesus finds himself. Israel is not in control of their lands. Rome has come in, kicked them out, subjugated them. And mostly what Israel wanted was to kick Rome out. They would have understood that the Messiah has a political and military aspect to his leadership. And so if someone says the Messiah, everyone else would think, great, they're going to kick Romans out. And so Jesus is like, just, just let's turn down the dial on the political and the military aspects of the Messiah, there's something else that you need to see first. Now remember, this is the first time that one of Jesus' disciples recognizes him for who he truly is. Who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah. And the first aspect that Jesus wants to communicate when someone recognizes him is that this Messiah will suffer. This king will bleed. This king will die. He says in verse 22 the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. Now, can I make a confession to you? Even when I was reading this passage in, in preparation, my eyes skipped over this and went straight to the next verse. Because the next verse is a Christian classic. It's the kind of thing that gets printed on coffee mugs, that books get written about. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me, amen. But it's so easy to skip over this aspect. One of the defining features, perhaps the defining feature of Jesus' kingship, his authority, is that it comes in the midst of suffering. This is the first time that one of his disciples recognizes him for who he is in Luke, and Jesus says, "Yes, and I will suffer." Jesus is God, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is not tricked into the cross he 's not been hoodwinked into going down this path this is the path that God and the Father and the Spirit have, that Jesus and God and the Spirit have worked together. This is the plan from the beginning. It's the path of suffering. And it's important for us to realize this for two reasons. One is that it is a great source of encouragement to realize that Christian, if you suffer in the path of obedience to God, You are only walking the path that Jesus has already walked before you. You are walking in the footsteps of your king. And the second is that Jesus is a leader who goes first. Jesus is not calling us to something which he himself has not done. Jesus is a leader who goes first. And because he goes first to the cross to suffer and die in our place, he can say these next words with authority. He said to them all, "If any wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? If anyone want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross daily, And follow me. I want to hone in on those three invitations to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, and to follow Jesus. Let's look at denial. We live in the midst of Generation Me. Never before have we become encouraged as we are now to become self centered. Most of us in this congregation will have literal profiles on the internet dedicated to communicating what you think, what you feel, what you like, what your opinions are. Unless we think, oh, that's a young person's game. The fastest growing demographic on Facebook is over 60-year-olds. It's all of us. We are all caught up in this tidal wave of self-centeredness. Even just for a moment, think this past week how many times you've had this thought, I deserve this. It could be thinking about cake. right? It could be thinking about online shopping, but it could also be thinking about sin. I've been good. I've done mostly the right thing. I deserve to do this thing. I deserve this. And into this tidal wave of self-centeredness, Jesus steps in and declares that if I am the king, you cannot be the king. If I am the king of your life, you cannot be the king of your life anymore. If I am the captain of the ship, that means you have to step down from being captain. That means denying yourself. And I think denying ourselves, what it ultimately means is making active decisions in obedience to Jesus that are things that Jesus would choose if he were us, rather than things that I would naturally choose. Can I give, like, just a really quick illustration? I think one thing that uh, Sarah and I have definitely struggled with and wrestled with as we've been obedient to Jesus is coming to Cranbourne. And it's not because of you guys. We love you guys with a deep and profound affection. But Cranbourne is an hour and a bit away from anyone we know or love, apart from everyone in this room, (laughs) right? All our friends and family are on the other side of Melbourne. When we moved to Caroline Springs, we knew very few people there is, I, I didn't grow up as a five-year-old thinking, oh, I'd really love to live in Cranbourne one day. Right? There's, there's resorts there, right? But The reason we're here is because we believe Jesus wants us here. And so we'd rather do the uncomfortable thing than live in comfort with our friends and family that we've grown up with all our lives. That's sometimes what denying yourself looks like. What would King Jesus ask of me rather than what I desire, what I want? Sometimes I think we worry that when Jesus says that we must deny ourselves that we'll end up losing ourselves. That we'll just become some kind of copycat robot of, of everyone else. Well, I want to say two things to that. One is that you are more than the sum of your desires and cravings. There is more to you than just what you want. And secondly, if you lose anything in denying yourself, you're only losing things that are worth losing anyway. I remember sitting uh, a number of years ago now uh, around a table with a bunch of young men and an older man. He was probably about Late 50s, early 60s, and he'd lived a fairly outrageous life. The kind of guy who had four girlfriends at once, multiple divorces, been involved in drugs, been involved in club, like just the whole nine yards and come to faith later on in life. And I remember he was sort of telling some of his story to us and one of the young guys said, you've, you've had the best of both worlds. You've got to do exactly what you want to do. And now you've got Jesus. You're, for, you're forgiven. It's, it's all gravy. I don't think I'll ever forget his response. All he said was that sin leaves scars. When we deny ourselves, what we're denying is a part of ourselves that hurt us and hurt others. We're denying the parts of ourselves that we wouldn't want if we saw ourselves as God sees us anyway. We're not losing anything worth keeping. And, brother or sister, if you've come this morning and you've got scars, let me tell you, Jesus loves people with scars. Jesus loves embracing people with pasts. Jesus loves you, but I think we'd all acknowledge that we'd prefer not to have them. We'd prefer not to have scars. There are some things best worth avoiding, and in denying ourselves, we avoid a lot of pain from this world. But Jesus doesn't only say to deny ourselves, he says to take up our cross daily, daily. This would have been a particularly vivid illustration for the disciples. They would have experienced a man, particularly a man, who would be taken by the Roman authorities, the soldiers, literally come on to take up his cross to leave the village and never return. Taking up your cross was a one-way ticket and there was no coming back. Taking up your cross as a Christian is a call to die. It's a call to absolute surrender. And I think, particularly in our context, this is not an atoning death on a cross. This is not a sacrificial death like Jesus was, but we walk in his footsteps. And I think, particularly for us, it might mean surrender to Jesus when we have a choice between following Jesus or the comforts of this world. Will you follow Jesus if it means losing friends? Will you follow Jesus if it means alienation with family? Will you follow Jesus if it means a loss of status or power or influence? Will you follow Jesus if it means losing your job or missing out on a promotion? Will you miss out on Jesus if it means denying yourself things that you really, really want? Will you follow Jesus even when it's uncomfortable? That's what... Surrender means, and Jesus doesn't just say to do it one time. I grew up in uh, the era of altar calls. You might have seen an altar call. You might have been part of an altar call before, where the preacher play uh, for the preacher preaches, and a particular moment in the sermon, the pianist will come up and start playing some chords that are all moody, probably like a D minor or something like that. All the musicians, like Jimmy, has no idea what he's talking about, right? But there'd, there'd be a mood set. At a particular moment, there'll be an invitation to trust in Christ, to make a decision for Jesus. And Many of you may have even become Christians at an altar call. You might have even written down the particular day and time that you decided to follow Jesus. And There's nothing wrong if you became a Christian that way. I just think the thing that's missing out often in those altar calls is that a decision for Christ is a decision we make every single day. We wake up every morning and decide to take up our cross and follow him. This is not a one-time deal on which we sit back and rest. This is a decision every single day from the moment we open our eyes to the moment we lay our heads on our beds. I'm in with this guy. I'm following him. I'm taking up my cross every single day. It means that Jesus isn't just one of the top priorities in our life. He is so far the top priority that everything else is secondary. Everything else. Education is secondary. Friends are secondary. Job is secondary. Even family is secondary. Now, how we follow Jesus will affect all the way that we interact with everything else in God's creation, but Jesus becomes our first priority. That's what taking up our cross daily means denying ourselves in surrender to Jesus. And the last thing that Jesus invites us to do is to follow me. You cannot be a follower of Jesus from the sidelines. You cannot be a follower of Jesus sitting on the fence, arming and ahhing. At some point, you have to get onto your feet and follow. You have to walk the same path as Jesus. Following Jesus means having your eyes set on him, and following, walking in his footsteps. Now, what Jesus asks is a lot. This is an easy believism, this is a hard call. In other places, Jesus says to count the cost before you follow me. Well, this is a cost. To deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow Jesus means something. It means the losing of something. It means the keeping of some things. It means a pretty intense discipleship. But can my encouragement to you be, is that when we deny ourselves, when we take up our cross daily, when we follow Jesus, that's when life truly actually begins. Because in denying ourselves, we're not losing anything we would want to keep if we saw ourselves as God sees us. In taking up our cross every single day, we're we're surrendering our lives to the one who cares for us, who made us, who knows us, who just cares for us so profoundly that he would die on a cross for us. And following Jesus, we're only following in the footsteps he's already laid down for us. This is who we were created to be. So if you're sick of life at the moment, if you're tired and worn down, if you're beaten up by everything going on, give up the kingship of your life. Trust in Jesus. He is the King of kings for a reason. He is endlessly trustworthy. He is endlessly good. He is the prophet of prophet, the priest of priests, the King of kings. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us. As I pray, I'm going to leave some pauses. It's an invitation for you to pray in silence, in quiet, in response to what you hear. But this is not a one-time deal. I would encourage you, if you do pray during those times, to do the same thing tomorrow. To pray, to talk with God, to open up His Word, to get involved, to get off the sidelines and into the battle. God made you, He knows you, He loves you, and He's calling you. So let me pray for us now. God, I confess that I am not the king of my life. I confess that you are the king. God, help me give up my authority and kingship of my life. Help me trust you. In the days and the weeks to come, lead me to deny myself. Lead me to take up my cross every day. Lead me to follow you, to see your rule as not just a good thing, but the best thing in my life. You are the Messiah of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to hand over to Sam now.